Welcome to the show, everyone. This is a light and shadow of coaching in and beyond organizations production, a documentary that was made to fund social impact through coaching for women in Kenya, and which has been ICF accredited with 10 CCEUs and recently has won the Ellen Shub Coaching for Social Good Award from Institute of Coaching, a Harvard Medical School affiliate. This is only possible because of how all contributors had faith in the documentary bringing about change in others' lives by creating ripple effects of growth, change and development. We believe that not everyone may need coaching, but that everyone deserves coaching and that coaching needs to be democratized to reach less privileged humans in our world. Today's episode is the fifth installment of conversations with coaches, leaders, educators who either donated to support coach training for women in Kenya or made an interview contribution to the documentary or sponsored the social impact initiative or actually do it all. They all have two things in common. They share their passion for social impact through coaching and love taking a holistic view at coaching from the light and shadow side of our practice. The goal of this series is to give you an intimate peek behind the curtains. What is social impact through coaching for our guests? And why does social impact matter for these coaches, leaders and educators? You take a look at the messy ingredients that go into a successful coaching career that combines both the light and shadow side of coaching and how these two sides benefit our coaching practice. I'm your host or hostess. Tunde Erdős, and if you wish to ask a question, make a comment, or recommend a guest, I invite you, send me an email at podcast at coachingdocu.com. Well, I'm here with Michael Tichelmann, based in Austria, who technically speaking produced the documentary, and who I wish to have with me, as he will have insights into the nitty-gritty details of creating coherent stories, without which learning isn't, and probably won't ever be possible. Hi, Michael. Hello, hello, Tunde. Hello again, right? For the fifth time. <laughs> yeah, and good that you're back from the USA from a recent trip. So I'm looking forward to this. Ah, okay. So you would like me to mention that. Uh, well, let me just weave it into our conversation with uh, my guest today, Paul Crick, the founder and managing partner of his own leadership development consultancy, the Elevate Partnership. Paul specializes in helping leaders and leadership teams to harness the skills and ethos of warriorship, a very intriguing concept, Paul, that I, I hope you will speak about today, uh, from the inside out to adapt and thrive in uncertain times. Paul has worked worldwide with Fortune 500 and Times 250 corporations, public sector institutions and voluntary organizations, and also... For us today, most importantly, Paul has done the voiceover for one of the interviews I conducted with Dr. Uwe Böning based in Frankfurt, Germany, and we were speaking about the development of the coaching field from the past, present to the future. Paul, I really feel honored to have you here on this show today, and I mean it because there is something that I truly enjoy about you. It's your professionalism and your dedication. No questions asked. And I love how you describe your geographic position based in the middle of nowhere in the UK. What's that about, Paul? Um, yeah, it's funny. I say that to some people and they say, what do you mean nowhere? This, isn't that a bit sad? And I go, no, it's not sad. I'm in the middle of nature. So uh, I live in the middle of the UK in the county of Nottinghamshire, which is about an hour and a half from central London by train. And when you arrive in Newark, which is the station I arrive at, it's it's another 15-minute drive, but you come down a major highway and you literally turn left uh, and you disappear back in time 50 years because it's one road that goes through a small village that has a village hall, it has a church, it has a pub, and that's it. Um, and then you can literally leave your front door and within, I would say, two minutes in all directions you're then in the middle of countryside and you can walk quite happily and quite easily for about anywhere between five and 10 miles if you so want. And sometimes it's good in the middle of, you know, if you're working from home and you need, uh, you don't feel like working or you just need a break and it's not, it's not pouring with rain. 
um then it's it's wonderful to to leave and just put yourself in nature and uh let nature do its magic yeah so that's what i mean so you have everything that you need right i think so yes <laughs> are you bringing this with you today absolutely yes i haven't been in nature today yet although we're planning a walk uh we're going to take our pup for a short short walk um afterwards um but yes uh i am increasingly listening to what nature is showing me which is a youngster i was less bothered by but now i find it fascinating i watched uh, in fact we watched a documentary called down to earth which is a travelogue uh, and it's all about um talking to indigenous peoples about how they heal and how they uh, work with the land and uh, i found that very inspiring and very informative um, and so it's a, it's an influence I can bring to my thinking, my work, and hopefully my way of being. I'm sure we will hear more about this. <laughs> Thank you for choosing to be here today, Paul. Thank you for having me. A hearty welcome. A hearty welcome. Is there something you yourself would like to add about yourself on top of what I have mentioned so far? Something that you deeply wish your audience to be aware of? I think about me personally. No, I mean, if you go online to social media, you can you can find all the the, the usual spots where you would find me, uh, and there's quite a bit of information there. Um, I think uh, in the course of conversation, hopefully, it'll come across uh, why we're here, why we met, why we why I became part of the the team and contributed in the small way that I did to. Um, the, pro the project. All right. Then let me ask Michael, how about you? Is there something that you would like to uh, say about yourself on top of what we all know already and you have told in previous um, installments? Let's say I'm really baffled by the current topic of AI and even in the workplace uh, now I'm encountering uh, AI and the mention of it. So that's that's something new from the last two months that I didn't do before. For me, it's a quite an interesting topic, and something we touched on in the documentary. Really, back then it was it was really far away, and I didn't really have a grasp what it's about. But that's something that changed since we did the documentary. I must say. Is there something that you would like to say about this? Because I'm, you're baffled. You said so. What what was what's a baffle about? Well, as technology develops, I didn't uh, think that I would uh, encounter something so changing in terms of technology. It seems that the topic of AI is something something really uh, revolutionary, and uh, I didn't expect something so new to come this far uh this quick mm, so it's about the speed this this uh how fast it has come your way yeah and how when we did the documentary and if i look back it seemed really far away but now everyone's talking about it and it's just a few months ago right isn't it <laughs> all right so uh you said something about me being back from the us yes because um maybe it's a good moment to mention it um, I received an award from ICF, the ICF um, Impact Award um, in Orlando, Florida, uh, at ICF Converge, uh, which is a, a conference uh, stage every four years. And um, I think this is also partly, and thank you, Michael, for mentioning it, because I wouldn't have mentioned this. Uh, partly this award, as I received this award um, owing to the documentary and owing to the impact that it starts uh, having uh, as we are rolling out the trainings and uh, the women start benefiting from this empowerment that we wanted to bring to them. Uh, and they are embracing this empowerment because we could want whatever we want. Huh? <laughs> uh, if um, If they did not embrace it, then it would, wouldn't be of any use. So uh, I'm very happy to mention it here that ICF um, is recognizing this impact. And um, yeah, so happy to mention it that I'm back from the US to receive this award. 
Right, Paul, it's about you today, not about me or Michael or anybody. It's about you. I would like to pick up today um, with with the idea that uh, I heard you say uh, something that really resonated with me, and that was how we need to make a conscious choice about who we want to be individually mm-hmm. and collectively, that, that it's actually what matters more than ever today. What is that about? How come that you realize this? And what can we uh, do about this? I think... Um... I think it's, I think you'll know this as you develop as a coach, you sort of grow, you have to work through your own stuff. You have to work through your own thought patterns as lenses through which you view the world, the unconscious assumptions you have and form a different view and continually develop and, and grow that. And I think what's become evident to most of us is the world that we live in isn't the world that that was intended, nor do I think it's the world that generally most people want to live in. And therefore we say, okay, so if we don't want that, what? Yeah, the coaching question is, if we don't want that, what do you want? Um, And then that becomes a difficult question to answer because it's kind of like, well, I want world peace. And I know that much as I want that, um, I can't actually bring that about, but I can do something myself in some way yeah, that that it's that old saying, isn't it? You know, it's the wisdom to know what you can change versus, which is usually yourself, versus what you can't change, uh, and then to do something about it. So, I think that's the, the the place I've gradually been growing into and continuing to grow into, um, as I continue to walk my path uh, as a as a as a coach, um, developing others and 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 learning for myself. So I. Uh, you know, the, there are lessons we have to learn. We have to become aware of what it is we're doing and some of the ripples of impact of that and then say, okay, well, if I don't like that, then then what can I do in some small way that changes that uh, where the, invis- the, the, the impact may actually be invisible or it may, as with this project, make a contribution to a wider impact. Um, and and I just feel it's the right thing to do. Now, whether that's just because I'm getting older and I've got more gray hairs and more experience, I'm not sure. Um, but I know it's where I am. And I know that I've seen too much that is quick fix, a hack, a shortcut, um, a get rich quick scheme, a self a selfish view. Uh, and I've had that myself. You know, I, I'd be a liar if I, I said otherwise. Um, there's, we, we rely too much and we emphasize certainly in what I would describe as Western culture, you know, individualism and materialism. And I think we're in a place now where whilst there is some room for that, it becomes how you approach that and how you do that. And that when you have enough, do you need more? Mm-hmm. I think when facing the quick changes of today and the crisis we have today, the question is, is, can we afford this uh, focus on the individual anymore? I think there has to be room for it. I think, and the reason I say that is because when we push against what exists, we know it resists. And therefore, we, if we say there's no room for individualism, then some people may choose to interpret that and say, oh, so are you talking about collectivism and communism and you know, all that? Because that doesn't work either. So there is a conversation that I know is happening. Um, that is, what what is the balance between individual and collectivism? There, I can't even say it. <laughs> individualism and collectivism, and we know that the scales are tipped in favour of individualism. So how do we bring that back into balance? So it's both and; it's not either or, uh, and there is room for both. But I sense that there there is an opportunity at a time when we think we are connected because we have this illusion of devices that you know connect us instantly and we're having conversations with people that we don't know and we think we're connected to them and all that kind of stuff we're not really connected um not in that sense but human face-to-face connection human heart-to-heart connection i know that might sound a little alien to some listeners in the audience but we we are and, and wired is the wrong uh word but we are biologically set up for us to connect with each other and it, it, it's 
it's it's a real uh, paradox that if that's the case that most of life seems to, if we let it conspires to push us apart and keep us as individuals and i think the first step is a very simple how do we connect and we connect by doing acts of service for other people i i also heard you could dr margaret wheatley yes uh, and I, I quote uh, I quote this here, being a decent human, being willing to serve an inhumane and um, indecent time. What is so important for you about this, about her words? I think I think it's courage. I think it's I, I, I think I think it's the courage to, as in coaching, to look in the mirror, to be willing to look in the mirror and say, where are we? And I think her expression in decent times is 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 really spot on because I read an interesting article the other day that said, yes, Indigenous thinking is very wise and offers a lot. But if you actually practically tried to scale it in our current environment, it won't scale. And I suddenly thought, oh my goodness, that actually puts us in a double bind. And we are in a very difficult double bind right now. We look at the rate at which we use resources and the time it takes to replenish those resources naturally. And we look at the supposed pace of its progress, whatever that is. You know, we're supposed to be, you know, we're changing faster and faster. Well, I'm sorry, that's just a narrative. Yeah. You change as fast as you want to change. Um, and uh, in some respects, it's propaganda. So, yes, the adoption of chat GPT, fastest technology adoption in, adoption in history. Does that mean we are changing fast? No, it doesn't just means a lot of people are fiddling around the edges right now with what essentially is applied statistics it isn't any form of intelligence in my humble opinion um and we're just experimenting does that mean we're changing we're probably changing is that change fast no because we don't really understand enough about what it is and we don't know yet how to apply it in ways that provide use cases that make things better by making better things so I saw a brilliant use case the other day. I thought, yes, that is where AI really belongs. And it was essentially um, a tool where you, where a um, deaf person wore a pair of glasses that had a heads-up display that could lip-read the other person speaking, and it would present what their speech in, in the eyes. So they literally could see what was being said. And I thought, that's brilliant. That, that makes life better for someone who... Um, life may be more difficult uh, for them than it is perhaps for us who are able to hear and use our senses to the full capacity. This almost sounds like magic if you tell it like this, giving uh, giving uh, ability to really read people with AI. Well, read the lips. So it it does sound it almost it does sound like it does sound like magic. And that's the challenge, is the genie is out of the bottle and, and we have to be responsible. So I was lucky over, I've just I've just come back from vacation. And when I was, one of the things I do to relax is I love to go in the cinema because it's dark and it's immersive and I, I get lost in, in that and I forget about absolutely everything. And I watched Oppenheimer and I was so struck by the parallels of the debates around the ethics of developing an atomic weapon versus developing AI and its its potential uh, for bad actors to to use it in harmful ways. Make no mistake, the bad actors are out there. They're, act they're, they're everywhere. You know, they're in every profession. It will get mis misused. Uh, and that's what we have to be mindful of. Um, we have to appreciate when we see things that look like good use cases, but we have to use our critical thinking to say, what else could this mean? What does this really mean? Show me, it's like when you were at school. Do you remember when you were at school, you you do a mathematics problem and you do the problem and you get a comment back from the teacher and it says, show me your working, show me how you yeah. work this out. And, I, and that's part of the challenge for the AI technologies is very often you can't show the working out because it's yeah. using... Uh, it, it's using stuff that I don't understand enough of, but I know from my experience of working with neural networks, you know, it's a black box. And therefore what happens between the input and the output is not clear. Yeah, add to that, uh, apparently they seem to make stuff up and try to fool you in the facts uh, quite often, as I understand it. 
going back to the movies, I think uh, this is like the typical thing, isn't it? Stanley Kubrick, uh, mm -hmm. 2001, where Hal, the supposedly computer who does no arrow, reads mm -hmm. the lip of one of the astronauts, which yeah. leads to death. So this is also yeah, and you know you've got the, the powerful synthetic, tool, synthetic human ash from the film Alien, uh, that, that that went off the rails. You know the the artists are wonderful. They they do make us think. Uh, yeah. and, and and I'm advocating we just need to pay attention uh, to that, and we just need to use critical thinking rather than just taking things for granted. I'm very concerned about how this is going to interfere with the process of democracy. And in the longer term, I'm concerned if you consider that AI uses knowledge bases of supposed facts. Well, if you change the fact bases, mm. then you change the outcomes and therefore you may rewrite history. And there are certain parts of history. You know, if we don't understand where we come from, then how can we make progress possibly in the future? And there are parts of history that need to remain written as they are um, so that we learn uh, as best as we can not to repeat them. We will repeat them because our track record in, in that is not great. But at least we have the markers there as opposed to a clean sheet of paper to say, oh, well, this is this is the first time it's happened. And, you know, oops, we need to learn for next time. It's like, well, mm, yeah. As Margaret Wheatley says, we're in our, if you look at how the pattern of civilization collapse, you know, it's set, it's the same all the way through history. And, and we're starting to see some of those patterns emerge now. So it, that for me makes it fascinating. Oh, how would how would indigenous people respond to um, today's uh, challenges that we are facing, or we are creating ourselves? By the way, what would they do about this? You were saying something around they couldn't scale their wisdom to, uh, to because it doesn't need to scale um, in this in the sense of in in the sense of globalized. Yeah, you know, if everybody tried to live an indigenous life, I don't think there's enough area areas of 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 land that would in, on that exist in the world that would support that uh, right now, and therefore that's that's part of the difficulty. But you know, if we think about um, let's take simple childcare practice. You know, if we have a baby in the West, what do we do? We buy a pram, we put them, we put the baby in a pram, and we whirl them around because it's convenient. We can get them from A to B. We don't have to hold them, but we miss out on the whole whole connection. You know, and it, we are. This has important implications for um, human attachment. You know, and attachment theory is an important uh, predicator of the extent to you know your uh, ability to develop, uh, the ability to regulate and self-regulate. Um, it, it governs the extent to which you are self-aware, to the which you are emotionally intelligent, um, and therefore, you know, indigenous peoples will carry their babies in a papoose so that there is skin-to-skin -skin contact for the first two years. They don't put them down. And that's why, is because they're teaching them, connect, they're teaching them human connection. They're teaching them the bond through interpersonal neurobiology. Whereas we will, we will put them in a pram and we'll move them around. And, and as we know, once, once you're disconnected, you know, that causes distress. So just, just simple changes like that can make a world of difference a generation down the line. If we look at healing, there's the view of healing that says, I'm not just healing the person, I'm healing the people who are gathered to support the person and the wider community. It's just a different way of looking at things. I'm living in harmony with the land. I am taking what I need, but only what I need, not more than what I need. And I'm taking care of it because because I need to go back to the land and say, yeah, we're back in spring again, and I, you know, I need to feed. You know, I'm going to live with the seasons and what that produces. How how do we do that? You know, whereas we're quite happy to grow fruits in one country, you know, in Peru, and then we'll fly them to the UK, and then we'll fly them to Poland for packing, and then we'll fly them back to the UK to sell on supermarket shelves, and we wonder why they're plastic in their taste and we want, you know, they're packed in plastic, which probably won't get recycled despite the recycle label on the, on the packaging. So it's little things like that. You kind of go, can we just change that little bit? You know, it's, it's, it's not saying we need to change everything at once because we can't, mm -hmm. but just small pieces of the puzzle. The more of us take that up in the same way that more of us join together around this project, the more we can have collective impact mm -hmm. for the benefit of others and ourselves. Mm. So can you share a few tips around 
how to navigate the edge of collective versus individual um, and in how we how these elements matter in our life today where can people and those who listen to us today like where can people go to to find sources of you said like we just have to think differently like how to think differently can you give a share a few tips with us what- so there's a great example from the Arbinger Institute that I love um and I'm part of Arbinger UK and it's the idea of us being in our box and we know we're in our box when we see someone else as either an object an irrelevance or a vehicle for getting something done and we're in our box for one of two reasons either we have a sense of deserving so we're more deserving or we're less deserving or we have a sense of um uh, i've forgotten the other one i'll come back to it um, but the idea the idea of being in this box and recognizing that is a simple question am i in my box am i seeing this person as an object am i seeing this person as an irrelevance or am i seeing this person as a vehicle that helps me get something done so you know do i cross the street when do i walk past someone who is homeless and uh, at a at a station and has got dirty bare feet and is trying to trying to keep warm and and is asking for help yes there's lots of people that need help but the the what we tolerate is the standards that we accept so there's two things very simple things we can do we can ask ourselves and say what are we tolerating so um you know are you walking past a piece of litter yeah you know, what's the, what's the harm in picking one up yeah does it hurt you you know, most, excuse me, most places have a bin or stations don't these days. I know that becomes difficult, um, but it's just little thoughts like that. What what can I do that makes a difference? Some, what small act of kindness? And it doesn't need to be major. It doesn't need to be a huge gesture. Um, what small act of, act of kindness can I do for someone and them not know about it? Or even if they know about it, just so, you know, am I in a box? You know, what am I tolerating? Uh, that I don't want to tolerate anymore, or I'm no longer willing to tolerate. Um, yeah, am I tolerating the the stories I see in the newspapers? Well, I choose not to. I'm not buying newspapers at all, any of them, even the reputable ones. Ah, oh, yeah, but you need to know what's going on in the world. If I need to know what's going on in the world, I listen to a comedy program on Radio Four on a Friday called the News Quiz. What that does is it satire about the events of the week? And I go, oh, okay, I now know what's going on. Uh, and I see little things on Facebook or things people tell me stuff. But you know, do, do I need to be glued to the news and um, and, and listening and, and you know, filling myself with stuff that affects my state in a way that I don't want it to be affected? You know, do I want to listen to new, read stories in newspapers that basically kick people down or are vitriolic, or they're divisive, or they clearly have an agenda. I've even got to the point where I'm not watching. Yeah, I'd rather watch documentaries than watch television. Mm-hmm. Or, or uh, yeah, oh, I will watch some films. Yeah, I won't watch. I used to love Hollywood action movies. Yeah, I'd, I'd love all that. But then I thought, why am I watching that? You know, if I really want to watch that, I can go and I can go to a war zone and see it for real. Do I want to do that? No, it scares me to death. Um, so why why would I watch it for entertainment? And all right, there's a dopamine rush and there's all that kind of thing. And there's the romance of the heroism of the story. And yeah, I get that. Where I am now, I don't accept that that is part of my life. It's not something I want to have as part of my life. And it's just a decision. So who do I want to be? Well, I want to be the person that doesn't watch those things, that doesn't feed myself with crap, that does try and educate myself. Am I the best coach in the world? No. Do I know everything? No. You know, I'm just doing the best I can. Do I have everything I need? Probably. In fact, I'm reasonably sure I do. (laughs) Um, So so again, what am I buying? Why am I buying it? Who am I buying it from? Every penny I spend and where I spend it is a statement of the world I want to live in. So how do I make a different choice? Because money talks. And all right, me spending less, you know, a pound less somewhere isn't going to bring that commercial activity to a standstill but if more people do and they go we don't accept that then eventually something different will arise in its place different choices 
And actually that social impact does not happen um, on a big scale, but no. it's the it's accumulation of all those small steps that we, like as you're saying, uh, I can do that step and then somebody else can do. And it can ripple down because we role model uh, through anything that we do or desist from doing uh, because we are being watched. So it can be inspirational for a lot of people. If you have the courage, you were saying you're talking about courage today. If you have the courage, then other people might have the courage. And that's potentially how social impact can come about. How does that tie in with your warriorship? When I was introducing you today, Paul, um, I was using the word warriorship and I'm having it from you. What is this all about in your life and and why does it matter uh, for how you are showing up in this world? It matters to me because it's the antithesis of what we think warriorship is. So um, five years ago, I took up martial arts and I took up the martial arts of Aikido. I didn't really know what it was when I took it up, but it's local. I walked past the dojo and they were doing a free lesson and I had a go and I sort of enjoyed it. I was in a situation where I couldn't really financially afford it at the time. Um, but I was using that as an excuse. And I, so a few weeks later, there was a they, they opened the dojo to the public to go and watch black belt tests. Uh, and so I went and I watched and I was just carried away and I signed up. I, I was like, I want to do that. And I wanted to do it because um, I'd watched my parents uh, as they aged into their 80s um, experience physical difficulties with movement. And it was, again, it was something I didn't really want to do. I sort of, in my head, I said, well, I can die. I know I'm going to die and I can't change that. But I tell you what, when the grim reaper comes, I'm going to be as fit as I can be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I came from a background uh, many years ago. So in 2007, I I weighed a good 280 pounds. Um, I smoked 40 cigarettes a day. I was quite happily drinking a bottle and a bit of wine a day. Uh, and I generally, I didn't really exercise. I, w- I wasn't a healthy boy. Uh, and there, there was a whole raft of things going on in my life that just said, you're not, you're not in a great place. Um, and I wanted to make some different choices. And I guess since that time I have been making choices. So it was yet another choice that said, I want to look after my body. I want to enjoy as much life as I'm given and the privileges that's, that that's afforded to me. So I started doing this martial art thing and they said, what do you want to do? I, I want to get fit and I want a black belt because um, I want to feel good about myself and I want to have bracking rights and all that kind of stuff. And about two years into it, it suddenly I suddenly realized I'd done some reading. So the way I work with topics that are new to me is I go and study a lot of them. Um, I have a lot of books and articles and I study as much as I can. So I became as knowledgeable about Aikido I can. And there was something from the book, the original book, The Art of Peace, that really st- struck me. The, the, the founder of Aikido said, he said, if you think warriorship is about smashing and killing, you're mistaken. True warriorship is about presenting slaughter. It's the art of love. It's the art of peace. And that just went home in me. I just went, oh, that's special. And that became, so, so that to me is what it's the art. Uh, warriorship starts for me with that. It's the art of peace, the art of love. Now, if you add that to things like the work that Arbinger does, you know, that talks about the anatomy of peace. And everything about Aikido is counterintuitive. When you watch it, it looks like people are fighting. It's not fighting. It's about learning how to work together. It's about how to redirect energy. It's about how to restore harmony without hurting your opponent as far as is possible. If they're coming at you with a sword or a baseball bat, trust me, you you want to you want to stop them. But it's not about winning. It's about stopping. It's about restoring this harmony. And and I think humans are supposed to be in harmony. Now, I know harmony is a word that some people will go, oh, that's fluffy and I don't like that. So I always go, I always say, if you don't like harmony, how about be in better alignment with, you know, that's the more corporate language. And we're talking about being in, in alignment because when we're in alignment, we all cooperate, we all collaborate. Doesn't mean we like each other necessarily. Nice if we do, um, but we collaborate. We work to a common purpose. We work to a common cause. So, so why wouldn't you want to do this? Yeah, I think in business, even at the big companies, 
working in a team is sometimes really hard because there are different individuals, different interests. But in reality, being working together and working towards a goal, I think that's what exactly harmony in this sense would mean. We still use the art of war as the, as, as the book, certainly in America. Or, or we love the TV series like The Sopranos, which I know I know is an old old TV series. But we love all that. But there's a speech by John Foster Dulce about the Marshall Plan in 1948. And he said, the world would never have lasting peace so long as men reserve for war the finest for human qualities. And, and, and I think, you know, if you look at the qualities of Bushido, which is the samurai code of warriorship, you know, it's all about honorability. It's all about uh, courage. It's all about um, honesty. It's all the things that if you look at any list of what are the top 10, you know, it's a standard post, isn't it? You see every so often on LinkedIn, it's like, what are the current 10 most desirable qualities mm. for a leader today? Um, and you go through that list, you go, every martial artist wants that. Yeah. That's that's what they're working towards. It, and it doesn't have to be just like, you know, that's what martial artists are doing. The other thing that they're doing is they're doing emotional intelligence. They are doing the practice of emotional intelligence. And when I talk about emotional intelligence on a on a call or a webinar or a seminar or something, first question I always says ask people is show me how you do emotional intelligence. And guess what? It goes really quiet because nobody really knows. Everybody knows what it is, but people don't know how to do it. And and we don't teach how to do it. So warriorship for me is and and Aikido is a way into that. There are principles you can you learn on the mat that you can bring off the mat that you don't have to punch people you don't have to throw people you don't have to lock them in lock the joints up but you can teach them about how to blend energy you can teach them how to wait until the, the until until the time is right to make a commitment to be you can teach them how to be decisive uh, you can teach them how to have uh, a warrior spirit. So one of the exercises I do in workshops is I'll bring two two wooden swords. Now, anyone who's seen The Last Samurai will remember the scenes where Tom Cruise is getting his butt kicked in a field by, by one of the samurai as he's learning to do that. Well, I do that with people. And I, I always remember one senior management meeting, group of directors, and the brief was, teach my team how to hold each other more accountable. So I took the swords in and I said, there's a sword. And we demonstrated, me and my common facility, she basically struck me, I blocked it and, and returned the blow. Um, nobody got hit, nobody got hurt, but there was a lot of energy, there was a lot of working together and there was a lot of commitment in, in doing that. And we said to the people around the room, anyone want to have a go? Well, there was a lady and she said, oh, I did two years, I did, my, I did karate two years ago. I know this, so I don't need to do it. Okay, that in itself was an interesting response. Everybody else kind of went, no, I, I don't think I want to do it. But there was one guy and it was his birthday and he says, yeah, it's my birthday. I'm going to have a go. And I thought, all right, not necessarily the right reason for doing it, but thank you for having a go. And and we faced off and it was interesting because I said, right, what you're going to do is you're going to raise your sword and you're going to cut it. And the blade is going to, very, very slowly, you're going to lower it so that it lands right in the middle of my head and it must touch my head. Well, he was a bit nervous at this. And I said, don't worry, you're not going to hurt me. Trust me, I'm almost a black belt. I really know what I'm doing. You know, if you were going to hurt me, I'd, I'd step out of the way. Um, anyway, he did this and, and that all worked really well uh, and he was fine. I said, right, I'd like you to go a bit, bit quicker. And he missed by about a foot. And I said, what's going on? What's all this uh, What's all this Harry Potter expelliarmus thing you're doing? It's supposed to be martial spirit. And I said, is that how you ask for feedback? from your colleagues. And he went, oh, okay, I get it. So just a very simple lesson like that, we can we can take people. Now, I also work with the leadership circle and the leadership circle has five meter mats. And we can take, we can literally put people on a mat as you would put people on a mat in a dojo. And we do the same thing, you know, different mat, different dojo, same lessons. So that's, that's, that's how and why I use it. Because it speaks to me, it's part of my life. I. It's who I am. I train four times a week uh, as long as my body will let me. And every time I train, I am working towards equanimity. And equanimity is the ability to choose your response 
when faced with provocation. Mm. Well, isn't that the definition of emotional response? Intelligence, the gap between stimulus and response. Can you, can you, can you stay there in a place of mental and physical and spiritual calm? And that's what we train. Uh, Don't get me wrong. There are moments. So I, I tell you a very, very quick story. Our chief instructor is, is a giant of a man. Um, he was an RAF tornado pilot. He served in Afghanistan and Iraq. He traveled all over the world. He went to Top Gun, the real Top Gun. Um, he was chief instructor for escape and evasion at one point for the SAS. Yeah, he is an enormous man. He's a seventh Dan in, Af- in Aikido. He's a second Dan in karate, and he is as humble as they come. Everyone in the dojo would walk, walk, walk through walls through for him. Uh, he is quite the inspiration uh, because of how he carries himself, because he has this equanimity. And you go, I don't want to be him, but I, I, w- I want to have a, have what he has so that I can be in the world and I can just be a bit better than I was yesterday. How did this connection about doing this martial arts and your work as a coaching come about? Was it always about that or no, did you it, it, discover it? it? I just discovered it. And and uh, there's a guy in New Zealand. So I, I was I was starting to explore a, a, where people had taken this off the mat, particularly in men's work. You know, one of the things I'm passionate about, I want to help with, is young men who have either been dealt a really crappy hand through no fault of their own. They're brought into circumstances that are difficult and challenging, and and make you know they want to be empowered, but for whatever reason, uh, their circumstances make that really difficult. Um, or they've gone off the rails. They've just made some bad choices. Yeah, that that, that was me. I didn't I didn't make some great choices at certain points in my life, and I needed someone to pick me up and help me and guide me and have something. Well, what better way to do that than fling swords around and throw each other around and have daggers? You know that will appeal to young men. But to slip the hypodermic needle under the skin without them noticing to inject them with equanimity, with emotional intelligence, with discipline and with humility, because they will get that from doing that. And, and you just go, that, that's the work I want to, that's the work I want to do is I, I, I want to, I want to work with people who can afford to work with me so that I can then do a project. You know, I can follow today's example. I can kind of go, oh, how do I, how do I do something that takes this from over here that then democratizes it in a, in a way over here that benefits a small group? And then how can I create ripples out out from that and i have no idea right now but that's kind of in my head so it wasn't always there um but it's certainly a part of where i'm headed in terms of the work i want to do and i like beautiful stories paul and i'm i'm so happy i'm just in awe listening to you and oh don't um, be in awe please thank you oh yes i am and uh take it please this is uh why would you not take it how would you take it in aikido huh what i'm gonna give you now it's a gift you have got a gift of storytelling and um um, i'm standing in awe here and i wonder how could we this beautiful wisdom um from Aikido and not necessarily just indigenous people because earlier we were talking about this indigenous uh indigenous wisdom but how can we take our own wisdom now and and um and work with it in a way that we can we can be more aware of the impact that we are having uh on others and more um socially as well on the world because eventually this is what we are uh we are here for to talk about social impact how do you see that warriorship uh, uh, and the principles of warriorship could could help us connect with uh, the impact that we can have and our awareness of that impact? I think, I think you have to find the others. It's a phrase Seth Godin uses. It find other people that want to, to, to think in similar ways that, that, that want to do that and then connect. And I don't mean, you know, hi, let's connect on LinkedIn, but mm-hmm. have conversations in the room share knowledge and practice what recipes can we can we produce and then how can we what one of the things that inhibits us is a flow of funds and the way the funds and finances flow around the world so how could we get creative Mm. Uh, and there are models that do that um there are how can we get creative at creating a pool of funds 
that can then be shared out to produce documentaries, to run workshops, to uh, help people, uh, certify is the wrong word, um, but help people gain the knowledge and experience to then be able to pass that knowledge and experience on to other people um, in ways that they want to do it because they believe the same things or they have a very similar outlook. Mm. So we're talking today because we have a very similar outlook. Yeah, We want to have some kind of social impact with a group of people that are important to us. Uh, we want to harness and use our skills in a way that raise awareness and make a difference because make a difference has meaning for us. Make a difference has meaning for others. Um, and hopefully we'll uh, continue after we're gone. Do you sense that in the coaching world that coaches are aware of this potential of creating social impact? What is your sense making around where we are in our profession? Uh, we're talking- I think we're in a very difficult place. Um, I So I have not a lot of data to back this up, so I can only give you a, a an anecdotal perspective. I, I think people are trying, we are oversupplied with coaches. Mm. Um, there there are two. One. You're the first one saying that. That's very interesting. <laughs> but it's true. Yeah. There are two. I think there are, there, there are in, in traditional markets, in the traditional corporate space, in the conditional one-to-one space, I would suggest the traditional coach of, you know, you pay uh, X for six months or 12 months of coaching, you know, that model is is still there, but there's too many coaches chasing it. At the other end of the spectrum, you've then got platforms that commodify it, that say, well, I'll give you a 40-minute coaching session for £35, and you can pick and choose. You can do one, you can do as many as you want. And you look at that and you kind of think, eh, I know what you're doing, but you're doing what Apple Music did to the music industry. Yeah? So it, so it kind of, kind of has has some place but i don't think it's found its its footing yet i don't sense yet and it's difficult because obviously i've got vested interest it's difficult to understand how that really delivers generative change can you do account a buddy accountability buddies to you know i want to get you know from couch to 5k yes of course you can you can do that you can automate that you can do videos all that kind of stuff awesome go knock you knock yourself out i think I always talk to my wife, and I don't—I I don't mean to be disrespectful or, or, or inappropriate, but I say a woman can choose to buy a bra for mm-hmm. ninety-nine pence in a mass-market supermarket, and it does what it's supposed to do. Or at the other end of the market, they can pay one hundred and seventy pounds, one hundred and eighty pounds for the same item of clothing that does the same thing. Only it's tailor-made, it's beautiful, it's hand-stitched, it's all that kind of stuff. The same is true of coaching, and always, and in my view, will always be the case. So I get the sense that there is that. I also get the sense that a lot of coaches quite understandably resist collaboration. There comes a point where we all get together, we have a conference, we chat, it's really energetic, it's great, we've made lots of friends, we've met other people that like coaching, do this, that, and the other. Do you want to work together? let me call you or all that kind of stuff Mm. i get it i i really understand that that wall needs to come down and it will only come down one coach at a time as 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 people do that through working like projects like this uh, and a willingness to trade off you know this revenue and income stream events you know the impact that you want to do that's a choice for individual coaches i'm not being judgmental in, in 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 that at all i'm trying to observe what I've observed when I've been at conferences or I've been at gatherings where we have coaches together. And I think, no, go go ahead. Can you just help me? Like this, I I love, it was a fascinating example uh, with the brows. Can you, can you kind of like dot this for me a little bit to link the the ideas together? Because I think I was lost. I was fascinated by the idea that you were bringing. So where does that (laughs) Where does that come in for when it when it's about the coaching field and the industry? So, so money is a narrative. Money is oxygen. Money, okay. money is oxygen that allows us to do stuff. And I can have a scarce mindset, or I can have an abundant mindset. If I'm a, if I'm abundant, 
I may choose on occasion to go and pay the extra, the extra because it's something I really want, something I feel I deserve, or something that's essential to my life. At the other end of the scale, yeah, I may go. I can't afford it right now. I need some help. Uh, I'll feel better when I do this, so I'm going to invest in that, and that's fine. All I'm saying is there is a spectrum of value, and the challenge with the race to the bottom, which is what I think I'm intimating we're we're in. And what's what's actually generating this yeah. generative change? That's what that was your point, right? What yeah. generative change actually? Automation is not going to produce generative change. It will produce a result that says, "Yeah, I got off the couch and I did a five k. Awesome, that was the outcome you want." Is that generative change? No, that's something different because generative change deals with clearing out or looking into the mirror and saying, "What are the unconscious assumptions that I am currently running that run my behaviors?" What am I willing to look at, and what am I willing to change, yeah. and do I have a big enough motivation to want to change them? Yeah. So to come back to Michael's point, actually, there's no need to be afraid of any speed of AI or any type of AI. No, it's a story. It's a story, and and I go back to what are you putting in? Um, what do you what are you choosing to believe? What do you? Why aren't you asking the questions to say if I stand out in the middle of the field? in the middle of nature, trust me, change is changing at the rate of change that is always changed at, which is the flow of the seasons, which is in time with the rotation of the earth. And you kind of go, okay, there's the, the, there's there's a tension here. And, and, and what are you really listening to? Now, I was a management consultant for 22 years. And the first thing we do is put the fear of God into clients. We go, it's changing so fast you can't keep up. Here's a really, really big number that if you don't pay attention to it, that's going to happen to you. And everyone goes, oh, it's going really fast and and it's a big number and I can't deal with it. Can you come and help us? Yeah. Yeah. All right, I've been out of management consulting for a while, but I think I've been in it long enough to know <laughs> that that's that's kind of how it has worked in the past and it's not working anymore. So what is the narrative that, because we are talking about the light and shadow of coaching here in the documentary, that's mm -hmm. a hour. So what is the narrative that, that coaches are, are pursuing and feeding and what needs to change about this narrative or what do we need to change about this narrative? Because the narrative won't change by itself. I think we need a both hand. I think at the moment, the narrative is either or. Yeah, either we do for solution focused or we do NLP or I work with corporates or I don't, you know, I do this or I, I don't collaborate. I do collaborate. I think my method's better than your method. I need to, I need to win a prize or I need to have a title. Um, I get all that. I, I, and I get all that, but we need to widen the scope to be both and it's like, yes, you can have all that. And we need to use the exception. I have, I have not met a coach yet that I go, wow, you're just an incredible human being that can't use that in some small way, whether it's an hour a month, an hour every quarter, it's, it's to start that little ripple. And, and and I know many do. So anyone listening to this that says, Paul, you're deluded, you're not, you've no <laughs> idea. I know many do. Um, and that's great. But we need more. And we need more to work together rather than just in isolation. So find... Yeah, find the others is great advice. Yeah, who who else wants to work with women to in in Kenya? Yeah, because there's I bet there's loads of them. How do how do we find them? And all you do is you hoist a flag and you go, I I'm this is me. This is what I do. This is where I'm going. Does anyone want to join me? <laughs> if you want to join me, please do. If you don't, that's okay. You go do your thing. Yeah, I'm not I'm not gonna hold that against you. But I think there's something about coaches standing up and going, this is what I stand for. And the problem is, is in this area of scarcity, which happens sometimes, it's kind of like, oh, well, I don't want to stand out too much. I want to stand like every other coach. I want to go on this certification because if I don't have that certification, people will think I don't know enough. And therefore, if I don't know enough, they won't hire me, all that kind of rubbish. And I think that's part of what needs to change. I think it's both and. I think we just need to widen... Our, our lens to take more in and then make better choices especially in our field that we call coaching right if we don't do it who should if everyone's a coach that's the truth of it essentially yeah. 
<laughs> if you're a parent, you're a coach. If you're a teacher, you're a coach. Uh, if you're a brother or a sister, you're a coach. Um, it It's there. It's like leadership. It's like, oh, I need to have the title leader. It's like, no, you don't. Mm. It's like you lead. If you get out of bed in the morning because you've had a crappy night and you still go downstairs and it's cold and you feed your kids, you are leading. Yeah. And we lead and we follow. We do both. And again, that's a principle from Aikido. I could show you a picture that says, all right. Uh, and it's of my two instructors working with each other. And it's a still. And it's got this, it's fast, it's blurred, and it's this energy of one throwing the other and the other one, the one being thrown is about four feet off the floor and horizontal. And I look at that and I go, so who's leading and who's following? And when I asked that of Cap Gemini, it was really interesting because there was this silence and they were like, well, they both are. And I went, is the right answer. And that's what I want to bring. I want to bring to it that understanding that we all take turns at leading and following and it's okay to do that you know I, I want the word like strategy i want it banned from our vocabulary it's it's like it doesn't mean anything and and the same with leader leader doesn't mean anything not really anymore it's kind of like everyone's a leader and the most written about topic and talked about topic is leadership it's kind of like okay call it something else because it's not helping yeah. so it's, it's how we are naming things and and giving things names and this is how we are rigidifying uh, actually, our imagination around the possibilities that we have, as you're saying, any mom can, is a coach. I mean, you're saying it as if it were like that. Uh, I, I like saying that it's a, potentially we could be if we had this awareness that we we are. Um, well, some people have told they'll never. They're not. You, you're not enough. You're not this. You're not that. Yeah. Who do you think you are? Yeah. You, know, you look at our British press. Generally, it's geared towards kicking people down or pushing people down. It's like, well, if you sit, you look at our soap operas, it's like, what the hell would you want to watch real life for when life for some people is as is either the same or worse? And you kind of, I know there's an education piece, so I don't mean to be um, overly dismissive, but there is a part of me that says, why would I, why would I want to work, watch that? What am I feeding myself with that's reinforcing my own narr internal narrative and my unconscious assumptions? Yeah. yeah, and and for years the cheapest TV to produce is so-called reality TV, where of you supposedly see yeah. real people that are in reality than scripted. So and 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 people people do that. People do that, and they think life's like that, and they think the only way out is you know to become a reality TV star or a YouTube. <laughs> and, and good luck to the ones that do. You know, I'm not saying you shouldn't, but there's other alternatives out there, and and it's back to this both and. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's what you feed yourself with is is it becomes your narrative. Your narrative becomes how you choose to operate yeah, so and how you choose you, it. What are you busying yourself with? Yeah. Day? Um, and what is the impact of that? Yeah. Well, um, I think we are coming uh, nearer to sure. closing time. It's I. There is something that I I still wanted to ask you, Paul, around. Um, why do you think that not just coaches, but more human beings should be implicated in social impact? What, what, what's what, it, it's so difficult for me, for example, I'm, I'm asking this question for, for a reason, because when I'm speaking and I was now in Orlando as well, and I was speaking about social impact and I like, I was expecting coaches to be inspired and then I was left with this disappointment, of course, whenever there's an expectation, there's a disappointment to go with it. And I had my fair share of disappointment in how I felt like, like, how come that I have to explain it that that social impact is is fulfillment? So how come how would you explain? How would you tell people, like inspire people to be implicated more in social impact? Well, I think it's looking in the mirror again. We don't like change. Humans do not like change. Change means I have to accept a change in my identity. I have to accept a change in my habits and behavior. And I have to accept a change in my network of relationships. And until we knock each of those three um, skittles over, yeah, change isn't going to happen. To walk into a dojo takes an immense amount of courage because it, it basically is saying, 
I want to change and I am walking into an alien environment. You all wear pajamas. You all bow and do these strange things. You shout and count in Japanese. You throw each other and it's okay. If I get injured, it's my fault, but you injured me. How does this work? And I think that there is a need to understand that we basically answer two questions. And the first question is, am I safe? And if I'm going to change, I need to know I'm safe. There's a lot of talk about psychological safety. A lot of it's rubbish. Psychological safety is not the absence of threat. Psychological safety is the presence of human connection. And until we are willing to connect, and a lot of people are scared of connecting. We've just come through a pandemic. If, whew, if I connect with you, I actually catch something. Um, but if we connect and are willing to see, you know, to see when we're in the box and to see that people are more the same than they are different, then we have psychological safety. Then we're in a place where we are primed for the potential to change. Then we need to provide a path, which is small incremental steps. And this is a principle off the map. You know, every lesson, you just need to be one step better than you were at the last, in the last lesson. So what's the small step of progress you're going to make? Because if we know, as we know, if it's 1% a day, that's 37% in a year, 37% is huge. Multiply that by, you know, you do the maths, do that by a thousand people or even a hundred people or even 50 people and look at the difference you can make. But I think it's about addressing the amygdala and our neurobiology and the way we're wired to, to deal with change. Am I safe? The second question then becomes, this is like what? And if we have no experience or no reference point, social impact, I don't know what social, I don't know what that is. I have no reference point. And if, if I don't have a memory, then my interception kicks in and I feel uncomfortable. If I feel uncomfortable, I may choose that to give that a meaning of I am not safe, therefore I am not going to change. And until we address that equation, in my humble opinion, we won't get change as quickly as we want. And yet in the dojo, we work over a period so that we're willing to run at each other with swords and knives. You know, I'm currently learning to disarm people with swords, striking swords at me, and I have no weapon. I'm doing it partly because it's cool. It's probably the coolest thing I'll ever do. But by the same token, it is pushing me out of my comfort zone. I am going to get hit, but I'm going to learn. And I'm willing to do it. Do I have a reference point? Well, I've seen other people do it. Looks kind of cool, but it's very different when you do it on the mat. The mat doesn't lie. Either you can do it or you can't do it. So I'll stop there because I know we've pushed for time. Oh, and, and just to sum it up, because for me, it sounds like... Um... So we haven't done uh, homework number one. No, I don't think so. Not yet. Not enough. To feel safe with each other and to have this human connection yet, even in our coaching field, we so there's, there's homework to do. Uh, it's I believe, yes. And I'm open to suggestions as to what what that, what, what that is, because if I can, I'd take part. I think one of your inputs, uh, collaborating as a coach and in the field of coaching, I think that's something that should be emphasized. If you think of coaching just one-on-one, same as with, uh, it, it doesn't really scale, does it? No, and in team coaching, you need eyes in the back of your head, so you always need to go two up, at least. <laughs> yes, yes, at least. Okay, again, I'm repeating myself, and I couldn't care less, because such a beautiful conversation with uh, both of you uh, here Thank you so, so much, uh, Paul, for this contribution, this deep co contribution. Michael, thank you so, so much for your uh, inspiring questions and input. And it breaks my heart to, um, it really does, to to cut it uh, off here. And I do hope that we will have um, an opportunity to continue this conversation, Paul. Uh, I do mean this. Thank you so, so much for this precious contribution. Thank um, you for having me, both of you. Um... And I'm I'm sure there is plenty of opportunity for us to to connect and come up with other things that we can do. And if the the more we can find to do it, then the more impact we can have. Is the human connection happened already through social media first? 
then through mm-hmm. the project and now here through our conversation mm-hmm. i really mean it to to um to to kind of like to have it in my agenda to to cultivate uh, and feed to choose to feed this uh human connection with you right. and uh, with michael together thank I'd you love to do that. Yeah. so you. as we are nearing the top of our time um if you are interested in getting instant access to the documentary guys please go to www.coachingdocu.com and if you have comments or questions and how you can be part of this initiative drop us a line at podcast at coachingdocu.com this is a light and shadow of coaching in and beyond organizations production a documentary that was made to fund social impact through coaching for women in Kenya. And this is my guest, Paul Craig. And you can reach Paul. How can people reach you? LinkedIn is the quickest way. The quickest way. Paul Craig in the UK, in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can still get LinkedIn. <laughs> uh, it was such a treat. So feel free to reach out to us, guys, and leave your comments. Stay tuned. And until next time.